Hello! And welcome to Pod Space Nine, the last stop for trash in the Alpha Quadrant. This is a rewatch podcast for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, featuring two veteran viewers and one newbie. My name is Justin, and I'll be your waiting commander. Joining me is my science officer, Anna, with our new recruit, Jude. Jude, Anna, I'm drinking from the bottle tonight because Henry Kissinger is dead. How you doing? Cheers. I'll drink to Cheers. that. Cheers. Cheers. I have legitimately had the Monty Python Henry Kissinger song running through my head on a loop for like the last 72 hours. Like no respite, no respite. I'm I'm not kidding. <laughs> that broke out in the middle I appropriately of a Lancer game. That news broke and it totally derailed our Lancer game and it was everybody just ran to Twitter and Tumblr and their various social medias and was just memes for like a half an hour as we were posting it. bullshit everywhere. The, the, the funniest part about this is that like, th- this is going to come out in March. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So this is going to be like old news and some like the, the actual like alien invasion is going to start and everybody's going to be like cat Henry who, uh, by the time this comes out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my, my thing, though, is that it is December. It is one of my favorite months of the year. Um, not for Christmas. I mean, like, I do like Christmas. I like the cold, but... <laughs> I'm sorry. Cal- I'm sorry. <laughs> Carry on. I'm just laughing at the idea of, of California cold. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, no, the California cold. It's, 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 a nice, it's a nice, reasonable thing where it means I get to wear a sweater for a couple months. <laughs> um, it's not real cold. It's just California cold. But... It means that the Gobla Goat is back. I was just, just explaining this to someone. It's my favorite weird tradition I've ever heard of. And I love sharing it with people. It's like, it's a Monty Python sketch that's come to life, really. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't somebody run into it with a car last year or something? I hope so. That feels appropriate. That sounds right. Um. If, in case you are not familiar, the Gavlagut is a Swedish, I want to say. Is that right? Norwegian? I don't know. I it's think it's Swedish. Uh, I- Ikea has little miniatures of them, like, in store right now. So I'm going to guess Swedish. Dope. Uh, tradition where they get a big goat made of straw and they stand it in the middle of a squ- town square. Sounds innocent. Sounds fun. Sounds European Christmas markety, except they burn. Not the town. Various random anarchists through throughout recent history have decided that this goat must not stand. So, for example, I mean, it is it's been going since 1966, and it has survived through like Chris, like through the New Year. 19 times in the past 57 years. So it's All basically, right. it, it, if it was batting, it would be an MVP candidate, but that is not <laughs> a good, that is not a good goat survival rate. <laughs> that really says a, a lot about baseball and B even more about how much people love to burn this thing down. And it's also noteworthy. That statistic does not remotely capture how hard people try to burn this thing down and how badly the people who make it do not want it to happen. They treat this thing like fucking Fort Knox. They have security guards and gates and fences. Like they do not fuck around. They do not want this thing on fire, but everybody else does. Uh, I highly encourage you in March because sure, that's going to be a helpful time to look up this Twitter account uh, to go look at anything this account has ever tweeted um, to see the most useful collection of fire related tweets you could ever want uh, gifts you could ever want. Cause that's all the replies they get. I mean, yeah, no, it's like, I'm a, I'm a very like inoffense. I think I'm a relatively like inoffensive Twitter user. Like I don't like, I don't typically shout down people or anything. I, I generally just be, I'm a little snarky, but I'm relatively nice. I turn into like a deranged maniac when I see this goat at my feed. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Just wanted burn to burn. It. We celebrated so hard last year when it burned. We were all very excited. 
very exciting. Um, I will be keeping a, a close eye on it this year in hopes of further uh, pyroclastic destruction. Uh, believe it or not, we are not talking about uh, goats on fire this evening, just goats of another stripe. In this case, a pair of goat episodes, in my personal opinion. Uh, these are two of my favorite episodes so far. We're starting to hit like, like this isn't peak DS9 by any means, but we're we've got a we're at the start of a really good stretch of episodes. Um, yeah. So a lot of these are ones that like I will return to over and over again, both for them being outstanding and for them being fucking hilarious. They feel very yeah. formative, like they yeah. feel like they yeah. are episodes that v- very much inform the way these characters are going to go for the rest of the arc. Um, particularly mm-hmm. in Rivals, it feels like there's there's some real like uh, character relationship establishment going on here. So I, but I just had a lot of fun. These both felt like very fun. Not didn't feel yeah. they were very fun episodes that felt very much like the do not skip canon. So yeah, yeah. these these Absolutely. are both Rivals. Rivals is just so much fun with like what it's doing. Yeah, it's a fun episode that like. There's no like. There's nothing that like aged badly in it. Uh, no. In fact, there's going to be. There's one thing I want to talk about that has aged exceptionally well. <laughs> I can guess where that's going, but okay. The freeze dried Henry Kissinger. No, I want. I want you to guess. And oh, I just assumed like, you were going to make a comment about uh, one of the actors aging well. That's usually what you mean when you talk about something aging well. Well, the I last time you made bit. that joke, it was. Um, What's his name from the Mummy? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> Obed. Oh, I mean, and that goes for that goes for like everybody from that film. Yeah, yeah. they've all aged like fine wine. So, uh, yeah, like Rivals is Rivals is great for a number of reasons, and the alternate is, I think, one of the better Odo focused episodes. Yeah, yeah, I will get into it. But I found myself forgetting to hate Odo for most of this episode. And it's a monster flick, too, right? Yeah, yeah. it's great. I love it. It's like, it's a real monster flick. Like, yeah, or, yeah. Where it's like, it is, a, I mean, we'll get into it, but it's because the monster is repressed trauma. <laughs> yes, that too. The monster but, is family. Yeah, the, tonight <laughs> we are covering episodes 11 and 12 of season two, Rivals and the Alternate. Um, I have Rivals, so I'll take us away. This is a story by uh, Jim Trombetta and Michael Piller, teleplay by Joe Minoski, and directed by David Livingston. Our episode starts with a man consoling, I'm, I'm putting the biggest air quotes here, a grieving widow who's got a fortune that she's tried to invest in asteroid mining of all things i i don't really you know this is this is what happens when you have people who are not from the federation involved is that they do like business practices and shit yep odo interrupts the man as he's listening and hauls him off identifying him as martis mazur an elorian artist. and previous victims of his have filed the complaint Martis gets locked up with a Nausicaan who has a weird gambling device on him that he blames for his ruin. Uh, while he plays the game, he says he won, and he dies with a look of peace on his face. Martis takes the device, which looks like uh, like something you'd get like a 90s like Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. It looks like a Beyblade launcher. <laughs> <laughs> Martis keeps playing the game and keeps winning. Odo releases him, saying his previous victims have suddenly changed their mind and have refused to press charges. Artis shows the game to Quirk, who the device does not seem to like, and uh, he loses the game. Uh, Quirk tries to buy the device off of Martis, but he balks once Quirk gets a little too desperate. After leaving Quirks, he encounters a shopkeeper, a woman whose husband just passed away. Man, this this guy has, like, widow pheromones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, she reveals she doesn't want to run a store alone and he suggests that they team together so they open up a club together uh, Quirk goes to Cisco and tries to get him to shut the club down because there's gambling there Cisco refuses and things get worse when Rom gets poached by Martis the widow is in Martis's new club and she asks him for money or the first widow 
comes to yes, Barnes and his yes. club. Like I have to, I have to remember there are multiple widows going well, on. You here. can refer to her as Ma Kent widow because she is played by the same actress who played uh, Ma Kent in the '90s, the infamously good slash bad '90s TV show uh, Lois and Kent. Shut All right. the fuck up. I'm dead serious. Good to know. I heard her voice um, and I knew exactly exactly where I had known her from. Are you you're, you're going to you're going to check to see if I'm if I'm full of it? No, I believe you. I'm just like I I lost my I lost my place. Uh, <laughs> she asks him for money for help with a survey so she can move on with her asteroid venture. Uh, Marta says to the the shopkeeper widow that they should try formalizing their relationship, and he gives her a bajorneering. Uh, Luck seems to be changing around the station with Quark's business drying up and Ops having weird activity in the club. All of the gaming gambling devices hit the jackpot at once. Whoops. The crew starts to suspect something's up, and Martis's business suddenly dries up. As Martis consoles himself in the bosom of, of a pretty lady, his business partner catches him and she try, decides to toss him out, along with his business. Desperate, Martis gives the asteroid mining widow the money she needs. Dex finds in a scan that the neutrinos in the station are having their spins affected by something that might be affecting luck. In Club Martis, Rom is getting fed up and he leaves to go back to Quark, taking with him a servant girl. Now, let's take a moment to delve into the B-plot here, because that's been going on this entire time, but I needed to find a way to, like, link these up because they <laughs> yeah. do at some point. Yeah, like, the, they do tie in together. Yeah, it's just they do it at, like, three quarters of the way through the episode. Um, our B-plot involves Chief O'Brien's latest project. He has finished a racquetball court on the station. One of the interested parties is Dr. Bashir, who is on the team at Starfleet Medical Academy. <laughs> Miles gets his ass handed to him, like, walked like a dog. <laughs> Especially, it has to be offensive to get your ass beat by somebody wearing the dorkiest possible outfit. They could have, I mean, yeah. they yeah. put Bashir yeah. in what looks like a secondhand alien costume from a 1950s B flick. It's all and like silver lame and it's crinkly and they've got him doing like fake martial arts in it. It's it's the most weeb shit on the planet. It's like yeah. what's something that's weeb shit coded but not weeb shit. Yeah. As, as soon as he puts it on, it also like turns the twink meter on him up to like 12. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Because he's not wearing like any of like the, the, the padded soft like Starfleet uniform stuff. No, and, like he is just dead. Like it's it, we have entered Flanders. It's like I'm wearing nothing at all yeah. territory. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a hundred percent it like that except twink is the energy that we're dealing with here. So Miles gets his ass kicked and Keiko's attempt to massage Miles' ego just gets him to be even more pissy. This is how middle-aged men lose at things once they reach a certain <laughs> hyper-competitiveness. This is me in 15 years, I'm sorry to say. Playing what? I'm trying to, I'm, I'm curious what's... Oh, this would be me in like board games or something in 15 years say. or like anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good loser. I'm sorry. You walking into your apartment, throwing your your Warhammer minis and and stripping <laughs> off your t your shirt as you stalk into the bathroom, muttering about your your uh you you almost you almost got your, your you almost got your uh your custodies onto the into the right position. <laughs> oh, do you play Apocalypse Rules? Oh, I guess we could do that. It's a little bit old. <laughs> 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 Julian reveals at lunch with Dax that he had been trying to stop the chief from embarrassing himself, but O'Brien kept going, and worse, he wants a rematch. I have to interject again, I'm sorry. Yes. I actually love that scene, because Bashir looked, he genuinely seemed so concerned that O'Brien was gonna die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, he's not at all like... You would, he's not smug about it. He's genuinely like, I thought he was going to die. <laughs> and it's such a, sorry. It's just, a really great scene because it's like, it, I mean, you're seeing the scene from Miles' point of view in the first scene. Yeah. And Bashir just seems like a little cocky asshole. And Bashir's just like, no, I'm just really good. I thought he was going to die. So I kept yeah. ducking out. I don't know why yeah. they added the, the bit of him having to go to like four tables to find ketchup. It's so funny. But it killed me. I was, 
in tears laughing as he's going from table to table trying to find uh, somebody that had ketchup. I, I was dying. I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but because we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all been at the like IHOP or whatever, like you know, going from table to table trying to find a ketchup that works. God, it was good. (laughs) We've all been that person, or the or the one table that still has sugar packets, right? Anyway, listen, sorry, listen, if, if I if I need my coffee and you're the only table that's got like creamer packets, I will commit a murder. <laughs> yeah. On their rematch, it goes much better in O'Brien's fair favor, and Miles thinks he's losing on purpose. Uh after O'Brien has an accident in the match, Bashir begs off. When O'Brien vents to Quark, Quark gets an idea for a big time match between O'Brien and Bashir. With half of the house winning going to the Bajoran Orphans Fund. This is the first time we see the Bajoran's Orphans Fund on this show. Oh, is this, this a recurring bit? Is this a recurring bit? The Bajoran This will become a recurring yeah. bit about yeah. the, Amazing. Like the yep. charity of the Bajoran War Orphans Fund. We can put a pin in Bajoran War Orphans. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh Quark I hope that it's always something that like Quark is leveraging as a part of like a scam that they're completely innocent. It's a lot, but lot that's mostly time. like Quark mm-hmm. leveraging them as a part mm-hmm. of a scam. Yeah, um, yep. uh, that's very funny though. Quark, in his best like big territories wrestling promoter energy, gets them to go along with the plan with sad orphan stories. Hot dog and a handshake. O'Brien gets a good luck kiss from Keiko, while Quark brings Bashir a medicinal brew from the monks. Bashir inspects it and finds out that it's drugged. Um, Quark suggests that he throw the match, which Bashir refuses. The match starts off with Bashir having awful luck. They cut the transmission and find that the ball is bouncing very weirdly, a symptom of what is ever is affecting the station. This is where our plots converge, where Bashir and O'Brien call the op crew down to the racquetball court. They find a, they use a tricorder to find the concentration of spinning new radios and find the machines that are causing the luck altering field, the gambling devices. Not knowing any way to turn them off, they just decide to blow them up. Um, honestly, this is the, I, this is the, this is my one of my favorite solutions of just like we're just gonna blow up the gambling machines. They, they don't have they don't have an off button, but they but we do have a phaser. No, I I love this moment because the guy is like, I don't know. I just cloned him with a replicator. Could be anything. These things are doing some weird space magic to alter probability fields. Let's just phaser them. It is such a fucking but. Why don't you just take them out and dump them into a sun? I don't know. There are so many ways to solve this problem other than phaser them in the middle of your station. But that's... It works, though. Yeah. I mean, you can also do the Emperor's New Groove thing. You put the machine in a box, and you put that box in another box. You mail that box to yourself. And when it comes, (laughs) you smash it with a hammer! (laughs) 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 Or to save on posters, you you phaser them. As it turns out, Martis's original victims have decided to press charges again, so Odo drags him away. The original asteroid mining widow joins him in the constabulary, and Quark reveals that she's a scammer. Quark offers to get him out, and even to book passage for Martis on a cargo freighter. <laughs> My favorite part of the, uh, the Ma Kent widow is that she's basically a Nigerian prince. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, I would like to pause here very quickly because we have called out one face that is known from this episode, Ma Kent, but we have not called out the most notable one. Yeah. So, Martis is played by, hold on, do we want to do it on three? One, two, three. Humperdinck, 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 Humperdinck. It's, I stared at it. It took me a good 10 seconds of staring at it to be like, where? What? And then he said something. I don't remember what it is. He said some word, and I was like, fuck me, it's Humperdinck. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, Martis is played by Chris Sarandon, who plays yeah. Prince Humperdinck and the Princess Bride. And frankly, if you don't know from that, stop listening to the show. <laughs> yeah. it's Yeah, he's incredible. And he brings... Humperdinck energy to this role in a big yes. way. Yes. Uh the the um 
the only thing that would make this better would be if we also had the Grand Nagus. Yeah. This is one of my favorite episodes, like, just because it's, there's nothing serious going, like, the, yeah, there's the probability fields or whatever. Yeah. But the yeah. two problems of this episode are a rival business comes up on the promenade, and O'Brien gets a little pissy about tennis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It's very slice of life, which is life routinely yeah. some of my favorite bullshit on these shows. And it seems like the it seems like the station is like never genuinely in danger from these things. It's just like annoying. The biggest casualty of like these gambling machines, other than people like losing money, is like just some twisted ankles. Well, yeah. and and Kira's uh, staff rep- staffing report, which she spent yes. several weeks on, got eaten by the computer. Right? Yeah, we. I mean, we've all been there too, right? <laughs> yeah, man, I. There is so much to love about this episode. I don't even know where to begin. I love that the device is the junkiest looking prop. It legitimately oh, it. looks it's... like a Beyblade launcher. <laughs> I it always it always feels to me like it's something that they got out of like not the like low tier um machines where you put like quarters in and get like the the thing in the the little capsule out but like the the higher tier of those where Mm. like whatever it is might have like a little battery in it that will last for like 10 to 25 uses yep yep it's just especially since it seems like all it does is you push a button and it either lights up or it doesn't yeah (laughs) like the idea of it being a gambling device is so Bizarre. It's basically it's a slot machine. I get that, but there's there yeah. does not appear to be any actual like I don't know. It's very silly. But people fucking love slot machines too. So yeah. true. Like, uh, I have seen a Babylon Five slot machine. So fucking and a DS Nine slot machine for that matter. So my my mother, for her lack of many vices, is a slot machine person. Notable fun fact: uh, the Lord of the Rings slot machine was was the straw that but broke the camel's back and caused. The uh, the Tolkien estate to sue Salzance Enterprises and caused uh, a fairly significant sort of chain reaction in lawsuits and rights usage uh, things. Depending on how you look at it, sort of resulted in the, the the sale of the Lord of the Rings rights to Amazon and the Amazon show. Huh. Fascinating. Suffice to say, uh, the guy in charge of the of the estate at the time, uh, Christopher Tolkien. Uh, did not like slot the, the slot machine and he felt it was outside of their license and he sued and they got a whole bunch of money for it. And uh, down the line a little bit, the license was considered, the it delineated the license very clearly what they could and couldn't do. So that's why when they sold it to Amazon, they had to cut a deal and go back to the estate and that's why it went down the way it did. Because previous to that, Saul Zantz was basically just doing whatever the fuck they wanted as long as it was Lord of the Rings related. One of my favorite things is that apparently the 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 tent like the the from like the production notes for this there they had been trying to do the Bashir and O'Brien plot. They tried to slide it into the B plot to like half a dozen episodes, but they kept having to cut it out. But it works so well here because we've got the like yeah yeah it works so well. It's the it's the perfect episode to slot it into. Mm-hmm. This is like, I mean, this is like the first, like, we, we've had the, like, the storyteller being the, mm-hmm. I think, the, the the first big example of it. But, like, this is, this is, I think, like, this is where Bashir post, like, obnoxious dweeb in season one, where he's, like, he's still an obnoxious dweeb, but he's, like, he's, like, mellowed out, like, 10% to where he is a... To where he is a sufferable character now. <laughs> he has a moment in the next episode where you really see how much he's, and I use it very generously, air quotes, grown <laughs> since season one. Yeah. Um, he, he demonstrates the smallest sliver of self-awareness um, about what a, what a dweeb he's been. Uh, but yeah, yeah but, I agree. but he still cannot bring himself to like he still has like this filter over his like self awareness yeah. that he like does not understand like the degree to which he does still come across as an asshole. Yeah, 
And meanwhile, and meanwhile, we have O'Brien there just like with his own blinders on about all of this. It's great. I love it. There are some amazing quotes in this episode. Uh, O'Brien has one of them where he's like, uh, I can't remember if it's him or Keiko where he says something about being a fossil. And I'm like, oh, buddy, O'Brien, you are a fossil and we love you for it. Just it's okay. (laughs) That's your energy on this on this crew. You need to be okay with that. So, like, and, not to get too far ahead, but, like, the energy, like, I wonder if this episode, like, or, like, the, the, because apparently, like, uh, one, fans really liked the racquetball scene, uh, because, one, because of Bashir's outfit. Oh, yeah. Um, and two, I, I, and I think it was a hit just with, like, the, like, the, there's good energy there that I don't think, I don't think there was really a character dynamic like that in TNG where you've got two people who are like, just have such conflicting personalities. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say data and Jordy, but they were like, they were like bro nerds. They were very much, you know, like they were besties. Yeah. Birds of a feather. And I could see uh, Bashir and uh, O'Brien. I can definitely see are going to end up being like, good buds but they're very much like Bashir and O'Brien are going to end up being to each other the guy you knew in high school that you would never be friends with now but you'll still go to bat for him because it's just like this is your this is your dude you know and I feel like that's the kind of energy they're developing where O'Brien cannot explain why he tolerates Bashir or why he even to go one step further why he goes to bat why he considers Bashir like one of his best friends but he'll do it over and over again he will go he will like put it on the line for Bashir and then grouse about it the whole time that is the energy yeah, yeah, you nailed it you nailed it yeah, perfectly you got it <laughs> yeah you got it yeah the uh, the the immortal line yeah but you like me more <laughs> yeah the and the um and it's like this episode already starts out with like O'Brien has been so fed up after a season and a half of Bashir. He's so fed up with Bashir. Yeah. And it's just like, he's he starts out the sequence of events already at the, like, bitch-eating crackers level, where, like, anything Bashir does, like, Bashir is here on O'Brien's turf, and, like, anything he does will annoy O'Brien. My favorite part of this is that he starts out that's the second thing that happens. The first thing that happens is he's so happy because he's got his racquetball court. Yes. And he's, you, you can see he's really pumped about this racquetball <laughs> yes. court. And then the door opens and there's this silver leotarded butthole mincing about his, his court with yep. all his energy. And just, you can see the joy drop <laughs> off of him like a, like a wet potato sack onto the floor and you just it's almost like you can see the words like suffer come floating up like stink lines yeah i yes i think this is an interesting episode because the b plot like the b plot and everything that surrounds the a plot is so much better than the actual core of the plot (laughs) yes because I think, like, in the end, like, there's some, there's, like, a couple fun moments with, like, Quark getting pissy. Like, when Quark tries to get Cisco to, like, shut down the, the Club Marcus. <laughs> My second right. favorite ep- quote of the episode. I didn't beg. I blackmailed you. <laughs> yeah, Cisco. it's like, you begged me to stay. I didn't beg you. I blackmailed you. Like, Cisco's just like, no, I blackmailed you. Do not take that from me. So good. Yes. Got us. I love Tisco so much. Every episode, he is so fucking like, oh god, he's so good. He, he is I honestly, do- he's the most normal person to be a Starfleet ca- commander. He might be the most like yeah. normal person to be in Starfleet we've ever seen. <laughs> Quite possibly, other than other than O'Brien, but he's uh, not a commissioned officer either. No, he is not. He is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. speaking of O'Brien, I want to talk about something that is personally to me one of my favorite parts of this episode, All which right. is cold meeting getting to have his shirt off. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and he looks like and speaking of like normal people, he looks like yeah. a normal person and it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean like Colt Meany is hot. There. That that yeah. like yeah. you know. Yeah. And like and he's like normal person hot. It's yeah. it's like it's a good look and I enjoy it. Not to uh tap into the zeitgeist too excessively, but there's it's like a dad bod kind of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's there's like very little special like special about it, but it's like the you get to have Miles with his shirt off and having like a like a fun flirty moment with Keiko, which is like yeah, it is nice. I, I I really wish that their relationship were not like to the degree that it is tainted by just the nineties. Agreed. Um, because I really want to like O'Brien and Keiko, and we have like all of these good moments like this where she's like, you know, I'll give you the the you know this token of my love, kick his ass, buddy. <laughs> Yeah. I also like the uh, whether you win or lose, we'll celebrate. And that celebrate is as weighted yeah. Oh, yeah. as Star Trek will ever let two humans. Oh, absolutely. Put it, you yeah. Know? It's fantastic. <laughs> Apparently, during like this, they were, they were, Sadig was talking about the, the prospect of like, oh, yeah, if I ever had to do a love scene, they'd have to send me to the gym for six months beforehand. <laughs> 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 yeah. Also, I, I find it very funny that um, the shoes that uh, Bashir is wearing are just silver-painted Nikes. <laughs> yes. They had a very, like, pumps-on-the-tongue look to them. Like, <laughs> yeah. they had a very 90s sport shoe-looking look to them. Very chunky. So, something that is funny is that we get a new rule of acquisition in this episode, which is... Never trust a man with a better suit than you. And listen, in the Star Trek universe, somebody having a better suit than you, if you are dressed like civilian clothing, is not particularly hard. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with Ferengi fashions. Yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed the widows in this one. Oh, the, yeah. Like in the A-plot. Um, and I absolutely love the twist at the end where the asteroid mining widow is also a con artist Marquette. because you can, yeah like you can go back like and rewatch it and see that she is scamming him in the very first scene that they have together mm-hmm. but it's not obvious oh yeah i don't know i kind of twigged it's fantastic. it i i i got a very nigerian prince vibe off her like right away the like just i just need an investment like it very I don't know. I I definitely got a vibe off of it. Yeah, it's it's enough there that you can like potentially guess, but it's But it's a good it's reveal. Not, like, Either it's way, not blatant. It's a good reveal at the end. And it's funny yeah. that uh the the con man got conned. Um, yeah. I also thought it was cool that he's an El Aurian, which I did not know were like a thing that they did. I thought like Guinan was rare enough that they didn't just sprinkle those into other episodes. Yeah, there's there's only two, I think there's only other two other named Elorians in like main Trek continuity. There's Guinan, and then there's and, Generations, right? Yeah, there's Malcolm McDowell's character who who, um, yeah, I think those are the only two. Huh. Yeah, and apparent apparently, um, it was originally planned that Martis would be Guinan's wayward son, who she does refer to in a um in a TNG episode. Huh. But Whoopi Goldberg was not available to guests on this episode, so they scrapped that little plot line. Oh, that's yeah. too bad. That would have been funny. But I, but I mean, it would have been funny. It would have, I think. I think it might have resulted in a worse episode, though, because then the whole episode would have been about the Guinan. guest. Yeah. yeah, it would have been about the fact that he was Guinan's kid, not about the fact that he was. The fact that he's an El Aurian is in this episode interesting, but not at all relevant. Yeah, right. It's just right. like, I mean, El Aurians, like the, the only things they have are plot related, like psychic intuition powers. They like they can tell when something is wrong, but yeah. only when the plot demands it. And they're good listeners. That's like the only two traits they. Oh, oh, and they're very, very long lived. Those are the three traits they have as a, a species. Yeah, 
Yeah, and if, if you don't know that Guinan is an Alarian, like, that doesn't mean anything. Like, yeah, unless right. you're like a lore nerd, that I mean, the species doesn't really mean anything. And, and I think the episode works better without... Yeah, I mean, like, if you if you watch TNG, you remember Guinan's really old, and she, like, is... She also refers to herself as a listener. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, I think at this point in the filming of the Star Trek canon, um, I think that Guinan was not named as an Elorian at this point. Like, or like that, that species had not been named in TNG yet. Just Guinan, like that it's just been referred to as Guinan species. That's very possible because she doesn't actually say it until generations. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Also, weird, weird thing with Generations. The guy who directed our next episode also directed Generations. Huh. I, I'm, I, I'm gonna level with you. I've never seen Generations. Don't. There are some interesting bits in it, but it's the one where Kirk dies, right? Yeah. It's it's like yeah. it's like the oh hey we've got you know we've got Kirk and Picard meeting and like and. There's not a lot happening in the movie. All so, I know yeah, about it really is that Kirk dies, and it's a pretty dumb death, and people were bitter about it. I think Star Trek can be hard to do in a film format, because I think that, like, the best film, like, the best Star Trek films are the ones that you could do as a two-parter episode, mm-hmm. but with yeah. just a bigger budget. I think that Wrath of Khan could be could be a single episode. Yeah, like, tracks. And I mean, I mean, uh, Star Trek the motion picture just straight up is an episode just with a whole bunch of ship porn added. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's literally there's literally like 40 minute episodes worth of like dialogue in that movie. And the rest is just like shots at the model. It's <laughs> uh, great. Which of the Star Trek movies is the one with the whales? And is it considered one of the four. good ba- good ones or the bad ones? So, I can never remember the number rule with Star so Trek. Star- so it's even numbers are good ones. Yeah. Uh, typically, I am surprisingly, despite the fact that like it has a number of factors that should be going for it for me, I I don't like. I recognize Star Trek Four is a good movie. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, yeah. Which, which like I understand why people like it. Well, it's it's got time travel, and you notoriously hate time travel. Yeah, but I actually like. But I like Star Trek First Contact. Which yeah. is, I would argue, a much worse movie with time travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is it is not a good movie. Um, but, like, I mean, there's, I mean, it's a zombie movie. It's, it's like, it's a zombie movie, really. That's what it is. Yeah. That's a bad movie, my friend. The, 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 the ultimate thesis of, like, this is a good, like, this, the, the, you can make a good, like, which all you need for a good Star Trek movie is to make a good two-parter episode and just up the budget is Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. Because, because all, it has everything you need. A Starfleet captain who has gone bad, a weird planet set piece, and you can tell exactly where episode one ends and episode two starts. Is Star Trek yep. Beyond the one with, with Khan, with, with no, it's no, the one after that's that. That's Into Darkness. Oh, Beyond that's is the one with the Beastie okay. Boys. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't keep track of the new, the new yeah. track ones. I didn't pay attention to them. I was not. The only thing I knew about them, I only saw, I only remember the first one because I remember sitting in the theater watching it and Carl Urban sits down and starts talking and I just felt my jaw drop when he <laughs> yeah. starts talking because he just nails the the... And the, like bones comes out the of the bones, mouth. like yeah. the 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 mannerisms of bones, so perfectly. I was shocked. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, I, I think Beyond is actually my favorite Star Trek film. The same, actually. Yeah, like, it, it's. Um, I think it's, it's like it's fun. It's it's fun. It's goofy. It like it clearly loves Star Trek in a way the first two Abrams movies didn't. Yeah, and it like it like I mean the 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 entire plot hinges around like some stuff from Enterprise, which is how you know somebody loves Star Trek is that they want to talk about Enterprise. Isn't that the you. one that was written by... Um, Simon Pegg, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think it's overall... Like, I, I understand why it is so hard. Like, it, it's it's going... Like, it's really hard to get that cast back together because a lot of people have become a lot more famous than, than Star Trek. Um, yeah, like Chris Pine, obviously. So far as I can tell, all Chris Pine is doing right now is trying to get people to make 
Dungeons and Dra- Dragons 2, which yeah. I respect. I think that's yeah. I think that's dope of him that everybody else has gone on to other things and Chris Pine is still like, so uh, when are we getting together again? When's the next session? <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> uh, I get that energy. Yeah, but I like it. it it's I, I would love to have that cast again because like, I love once they got around to it, how much work they made into like making the Enterprise's crew look like a bunch of aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which which is like, and I I loved the energy of the uh, of that last movie. That's that's really what it was. Is like the yeah. energy of it was. I should go sure. back and watch. It was it, it was fun. Like yeah. it 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 like captured the part where Star Trek is fun. Yeah. One could argue that those that 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 is not always uh, on the mind of of certain writers. Anyways, let's move on before we 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 make yeah. this a Star Trek movie podcast, uh, yeah. which we should never do. Let's move on to the alternate. All right. Um, I w- one one last thing is that I would like to point out that neutrinos can only spin one way. Yes. Uh, that that. <laughs> so I find know. that really funny. Every now and then, some like I am reminded that there existed a time. Before Wikipedia. <laughs> Before yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah. And this was something we found when I was doing Garbage of the Five Rings. We frequently would come across these interviews where people would be like, it was like 1994, man. We had an Encyclopedia Britannica and Kurosawa films. That was it. That's what we were working with when we were designing this terrible pastiche game. Nobody, yeah. we didn't have Wikipedia to fact check how racist we were being when we were inv- inventing these terrible tropes. Yeah. So, so they just, the, the writers just assumed that, assumed that like everything else, neutrinos had, you know, two direct, multiple directions of spin, but nope. Yeah. Do, isn't there like four, like, uh, no, no, no. I'm thinking of like, quarks Are you talking about spin. Quarks? Up yeah. Down, charm there's strange. like, there, there's like, like straight, like strange charm. What? Yeah. Up, I, down, charm, strange. Which... I did. That is that is a section of physics that I like noped out of real hard a long time ago. As I understand it, the whole like even up and down is sort of an abstract. Like, yeah, it's not so yeah. much that they're spinning up and down. It's just that's what they called it. Yeah, yeah. And then there's strings. Anyway, anyway, next yeah. episode here. Um, we've got the alternate story by Jim Trombetta and Bill Dial. Teleplay by D- Bill Dial and directed by David Carson. We open on Odo in discussion with Quark, who is in the process of hawking the vacuum-desiccated remains of famous Frankie entrepreneur Plague. Odo reveals that the real Plague is alive and well, which opens the question of who Quark is selling. Why do Frankie have like the have like I want to know who made it the 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 goal that all Frankie names have to sound like the least aesthetically pleasing things, Quark. <laughs> Plague. <laughs> Nog. Yes. Rom. I also want to point out that Plague is the inventor of the holosuite. Yes. So yes. Plague is essentially the inventor of like pornographic DVDs. That's the <laughs> yes. that's, that's the level we're working with here. Yep. So the mystery of who Quark is selling is interrupted by the arrival of the Bajoran Dr. Mora Pohl, the researcher who discovered analyze raised odo all of them um and with whom he has a, a tense relationship shall we say um dr moore gets all up in odo's business um with the, the conversation with quark like you know like the world's worst helicopter parent um but reveals that he may have found a clue to odo's origins out in the gamma quadrant Odo and Dr. Mora, accompanied by Dax and another Bajoran scientist, head through the wormhole to a currently uninhabited planet. They find a small silicate-based creature that seems to have similar DNA to Odo, as well as a large monument. Dax beams them both up to the runabout for future study, but this triggers an earthquake and the release of a toxic gas that affects the humanoids, but not Odo. He orders the computer to lock onto everyone and beam them back. Once everybody returns to the station, Bashir treats the... the three scientists, while Odo begins studying the life form, which keeps shifting and is being contained by a level five force field. The next morning, however, the science lab is trashed and the creature is missing. 
O'Brien tracks it through the access ducts and finds it, but it is... it is no more. It is deceased. Bashir's analysis reveals it needed a different atmosphere to survive. And as Bashir works in the infirmary, he is attacked by a shape-shifting tentacle. What the hell? I thought this thing was dead. He fights it off with a laser scalpel and informs station staff that there is still an intruder on board. Cisco escalates the situation to red alert from yellow alert, and Odo converses with Dr. Mora, who has recovered from his injuries. Mora knows the similarities between Odo's detective work and the scientific method, but Odo is not convinced of this. Mora proceeds to work with Dax on analyzing the specimens from the life form that attacked Bashir and returns to Odo alone with his findings. The sample was from Odo himself. Rutro. Rutro. Mura hypothesizes that Odo was affected by the gas and attacked the lab and Bashir unconsciously while regenerating. Further, he suggests that Odo might have been doing this all along and be responsible for similar attacks in the past, and he just thinks that they're unsolved crimes. He then goes on to state that none of the station staff will trust Odo anymore. They will all think that he is a terrible murdering monster um, and that Odo must therefore clearly have no choice but to return with Mora to the research lab on Bajor. So I'm going to interrupt real quick just because there was a tentacle that was crossing Jade's screen for a moment. As it turns out, it was cat. It was a cattail. But I was like, this is very thematic. I'm like, why is there a tentacle coming across Jude's camera? Followed by a cat butt through that window yes. for free. Yep. Continue, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so 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 Mora's like, oh Odo, you know, you you must you must have done the you must have done these attacks. By the way, you might have done attacks in the past. I I no idea, but like seems plausible. By the way, you're gonna have to move back in with me. We're going home, kid. Um, Odo refuses. He uh, might be anxious about the situation, but he trusts the station staff a hell of a lot more than he trusts Dr. Mora. Yeah. Um, and he then begins to transform and flees. Mora heads to Ops and explains the situation, that Odo is in fact the creature, that he's affected by the gas on the planet. He volunteers to serve as bait to capture Odo, and they manage to trap him in a force field. As Odo throws himself at the force field in his attempts to attack Mora, the scientist realizes that Odo really doesn't have fond memories, actually, of their time on Bajor, um, and that, in fact, Odo did feel like a prisoner there. Uh, Sisko and Mora drop the force field, and Odo collapses. Bashir and Mora manage to purge the gas from his system, and uh, Odo and Mora have a conversation in the epilogue. Odo apologizes for attacking Mora, and Mora apologizes for not understanding how Odo felt about his time on Bajor. The two part ways planning to gradually rebuild their relationship. Oh god, I fucking hate Mora so much. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a good episode, though. Yeah, this is a really good episode, because I feel like... I mean, one, you learn a lot about why I, it gives a lot of clues to why Odo is the way he is. Yeah. But I think it also like, there is a common trope within Star Trek of the, the outsider, the outsider character who does not understand stuff and has to learn to be, I, I'm going to put air quotes here, human. Yeah. Which in the original series that is Spock, TNG is Data, in Voyager that is both the Doctor and later Seven of Nine. I feel like especially with Odo, that is a real, like, that it is really coded for, like, disability or neurodivergence. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the, like, the paternalism involved with Mora. The, yeah. Um, I It just, it's the... You don't know what's best for yourself. I know what's best for you. And you're going to hurt people if you don't follow what I say. You know? Yeah. And, like, notably, he apologizes to Odo for, like, keeping him captive and not realizing that, like, Odo was not happy being a captive in the lab. Mm -hmm. But he does not apologize to Odo for the events of this very episode where he, like, he pivots, like, he he realizes that Odo is behind the attacks and just instantly pivots to using that fact to manipulate Odo to coming back so he can research him more. Yes. Yeah. Um, like it's so, it's so manipulative and he does not, he does not apologize for that at all, which I think is notable. 
uh, one of my notes I have is that someone who wrote, uh, one of the people who wrote this episode has a toxic parent, lol. Uh, yeah. Because the way that Dr. Mora talks to Odo is so incredibly tone accurate for a like overbearing or like um oh what's the word it just slipped right off the tip of my tongue like he, um, it's a helicopter parent yeah well not a, for me it but wasn't even so that. much he- helicopter parent as a um oh what's the other what's the one with a where you, it's everything's about the, the parent um narcissist. narcissistic a narcissistic parent yeah. there was some real like verbiage there where like Mora's like, you didn't find our science fascinating and fun? And Odo's sitting there like, no, as it turns out, I didn't like living in a test tube and being poked. Fuck you. Like, yeah. yeah. Odo's like, yeah, I didn't find the science interesting and fun because I was the science. Yeah. But I also like on the flip side of that, though, is that I also love that everybody recognizes that in spite of that, Mora is Odo's dad. Mm-hmm. Like, Odo might, might not want to admit it, but that's absolutely what's happening here. Yeah. Like, that is the emotional dynamic here. Yeah. Whether or not either one of them want that or are willing to put that label on it, like Cisco and Quark, like everybody immediately tags that that is the dynamic between these two. Yeah. Which I think is really, really interesting because it's not just like, it's not as though it's novel to have those two characters in that situation have that dynamic. Mm -hmm. But there's the fact that Odo doesn't entirely recognize, doesn't entirely accept that label. Like they have a very weird, Mm -hmm. the facts of their relationship are very weird, but the actual like tenor and emotions of that relationship could not be more bread and butter, weird, toxic parent and kid like whatever unhealthy aspects of it there are it reads so intensely as a parent child relationship which i thought was a really nice way to do that because it it humanizes odo in a really in a really interesting way yeah this is not experience that i personally have so i may be reading too much into this etc but it also um i feel like there's some similarities to like you know some of the narratives i've heard from like friends and acquaintances who were adopted by less than perhaps less than ideal parents shall mm. we say mm. i could totally see that you know pe- like people who are adopted and have a fraught relationship with their adoptive parents mm-hmm. yeah i can see how that would that would read i also totally get the the neurodivergent uh read as well that yeah. seems very strong with me it's just one of those. I think it's one of those things where the, it's open enough, and it's obviously not doing something where you you can you can read into it how you want. And o- Odo is interesting on that because a lot of the outsider characters, especially all the ones up to this point, have been outsiders because they process emotions differently. Mm-hmm. Odo's got his own weirdnesses, but he's got he has emotions. Yeah. Um, and he has like human, you know, fairly human-like emotions too. Yeah, I, I think I think the interesting one is that for for Odo, and it's somewhat like Data in that it's a, it, there's like a social distance there. Yeah, and we'll see as the series how Odo sort of changes with regards to that. But I, I just I find it really interesting that you know, like that there are points in the there are points in this. When Mora is like trying to say like, oh, they they call you constable because it's affectionate, and like like they they're not doing it in like a, a demeaning way. They're doing it because they make they want to make they want to make you feel part of the community. If Kira had said that, he would have accepted it. But because mm-hmm. it's Mora saying it, Oda's only response is "fuck you, old man." <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what's what funny about Mora is there definitely are things where he's like legitimately like. He seems legitimately proud of Odo in a lot of places. Like, you're good at this. And you seem to have integrated in a lot of really decent ways. But also, he's, he can't comment on any of it without it sounding vaguely like an insult. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel I feel like it's like, you know, if you were a neurodivergent person and like, you know, your parent came with you to work one day and they just like followed you around in your workplace all all day being like, oh, my gosh, honey, you've done such an amazing job learning how to talk to people. You in that meeting, you like raised your hand and talked. I'm so proud of you. And it's just like it comes <laughs> across exactly. as just like condescending. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, it's like, exactly like, the energy. Yeah. Like, you know. If somebody were to do that to me, my hackles would be like absolutely up, up yeah. and I would be like, you know, giving them a death glare. And like, I feel Odo on that. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of interesting scenes here with regards to parents, with regards to Cisco. Um, <laughs> Cisco and the Klingon opera. So, yeah. I, the first one is, God, I mean, like, he's like, Cisco has one of these every episode where, where it's like, um, like, Jake is like, I am absolutely not feeling this Klingon opera thing. I don't want to do it. And, like, he's like, who knows? You could be working with Klingons when you grew up and you'd want to share culture with them. And uh, Jake's like, when is the last time you listened to Klingon opera? And <laughs> Cisco thinks about it because he's like, when I was your age. And <laughs> Jake says, just because you suffered through all of that doesn't mean I have to. And Cisco with the big sheet in your says, yes, it does. Yeah, and he doesn't even <laughs> hesitate. He comes back with that immediately. But I'll tell you, you want to know my favorite part of this whole scene? I mean, yes, it's the Klingon opera stuff, but my favorite, like, my favorite directing decision of this, of that scene is right at the beginning, they have Jake like in the background and he's like psyching himself up for a second before he yes. tries to go through it. He's like, okay, act casual, act casual, act casual. Okay. You haven't gotten your and homework goes, done. You're just going to go and hang out with Nog. It's fine. It's fine. It's such a good moment for a character who's like, yeah. when you have Cisco as a dad, you got it. Like if you're up to anything less than totally on the up and up legit behavior, you got to walk real careful. And I, it's yeah. just such a nice little touch moment. I just, it made me laugh really hard when I saw him in the background there. We also get a little bit of information about Cisco's relationship with his own dad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I th- it's weird because I, I think this was just a, oh, hey, we, we decided on this later. Um, like they make the, the dialogue in this episode makes it seem like he's not around anymore Um, yeah but he actually is and we will see him later in the series yeah and and like it works it works either way that like you know it makes sense that you know at the age that cisco is that like having having a parent who you know has had some sort of health crisis even if they're still around is you know not unexpected yeah and i cannot wait for uh Jude to meet Joseph Cisco because Yes. Whatever you think he is like, he is not. <laughs> I can't wait just because I mean Cisco is such an ace's dad. I'm very curious if he's like <laughs> dad plus or if Cisco like is one of those guys that like went the other way from his dad. I get the vibe though that grandpa Cisco is gonna be like he's gonna have big dad energy like He's going to be like Cisco only more. I can't wait. I can't wait for you to get there. I can't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want spoilers. I want to be surprised. I'm just, I'm speculating here for the audience that my sense is that he's going to be. The two-parter where, I mean, it's really the longest we get to spend on Earth in like Star Trek in a while. Um, It's one of, it's it's a really good two-parter and I can't, and I think that's next season. It's either next season or season four. Yeah. Cool. Also, th- this episode must have taken so much of the CGI budget for the season. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I feel like we see too much of the monster for the horror, for the horror vibe. Yeah, at yeah. the very end, there, uh, Odo goes from like intimidating to uh, he looks like Ditto, the yeah. Pokemon Ditto, <laughs> trapped in the I, forest field. I do love the makeup of him melting and shit. Yes. Yeah, when he loses control, I've li- I li- I do like that makeup. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that uh, Starfleet's Western Imperial background is 
underpants are showing when they just randomly beam this artifact off this planet with no regard for whatever uh, place it may have. They're just, let's just Indiana Jones this shit. Pluck it off the planet. Maybe it caused a volcanic eruption. Who knows? Who cares? Ours now. We'll Is see. it booby-trapped? Maybe. We'll see that monument again. Where should, we, where should we store this? I don't know. How about the British Museum? Seems like a good place to put things like this. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see that monument again. I assume so. Uh, season three, episode two. <laughs> I feel like everything about Odo's background is probably a little bit freighted. I, it's interesting because I have no like actual idea how much of this they were planning. And for what it sounds like they didn't, there is enough that when they eventually fill it in, you can sort of like, they don't ever like, they don't go in and explain a lot of it but it's sort of it's it's big enough that you can sort of tie it together and i mm-hmm. i find that to be like a it's it's like a little bit of a uh ramshamble way of doing it but yeah. we weren't we weren't making tv like that yet uh <laughs> we didn't have yeah. a series bible or anything to go off of so yeah. i think like I, I find it interesting just of like the oh well there's a little bit of stuff here and it's all around the gamma quadrant but we don't know quite what's going on yet uh, i'm trying to think is that okay so one th- one thing i think this episode introduced the idea of that i am sad that they never follow up on is i wish that odo had a cabinet behind his desk of pieces mm-hmm. of dead ferengi <laughs> Yeah, it would be like I want the I want the collection of weird death ritual shit because yeah, it's exactly the sort of thing that morbid slime would do would be collect death ritual artifacts. And given his contentious history with Quark for him to collect Ferengi dead Ferengi just for shits and giggles would be be like I think he I think like in the scene he is actually just fucking with Quark. Yeah. Um, he yeah d- like he doesn't actually he like he he doesn't have like a like the collection or anything or he doesn't I think he's just fucking with Quark, but I think it would be such a big dick move to have like cabinet of dead Ferengi <laughs> desiccated dead Ferengi remains. <laughs> that said, assuming that Odo outlives Quark and God I have no idea if that's the case, I assure you he bought a piece of Quark. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. So I'd like to like recall something with Odo with all of the like relationship with Dr. Mora, etc. Mm-hmm. Which is that Odo is a lot younger than he looks. Like yeah. he looks like a middle-aged man, but he's <laughs> actually like mid-20s. Like he's actually yeah, like Bashir's best. age. Yeah. Morris wait, like Mora studied him for what, like seven years or something like that? Like yeah. nominally, like it the timeline is kind of like squishy yeah, the, the timeline that, is but- funky here i like i i i think like saying like odo has been around for 20 25 years is makes sense yeah, yeah. that's buck wild yeah like she like he looks like a middle-aged man but like and you kind of expect him to have a relationship with his father the way that a middle-aged man would but yeah. nope he he is basically a like rebellious teen too uh, that's very funny. Something amazing. about Mora that is interesting is originally they were considering to do to go the Brent Spider route with Mora. Yes. Where like where where uh Brent Spider played both Data and Union Sun, and like the Doctor's creator would would also play the Doctor uh in Voyager. But then they realized that it was going to take like it, like it would take make the episode film twice as long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because they would have to do prosthetics for both Mora and Odo. Yeah, so they eventually just decided to get a character, which I think actually makes it work better. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Especially, especially that like, yeah, I could see where Odo took his hairstyle from Mora, but yeah. I could absolutely see that like Odo would not want to like look like Mora. Yeah, that otherwise. was my thing. I didn't. I don't buy that he would want to look like Mora. Yeah, um, that didn't. But I, I I think it would have been wild, but I do agree that he I don't think he would have wanted to look like more. Yeah. I, I think I think it's because Odo is allowed to choose to look he he can choose what he looks like. Um he he does not take that form, though he does keep the hair, I guess, which I suspect that Odo once upon a time looked and sounded a lot like a lot more like Mora than he does now. Yeah, I think that probably is a safe bet. 
I think you could, I, I think like, and obviously that's like, I think you could have like, there could have been some, some fun stuff with that maybe, but yeah, that that's obviously like, that'd be a very, I think doing anything in that lab would have, would have been a very, I think fraught script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, An Odo thing that I also really appreciate with this show um, that's like a small detail. So as the show goes on, the prosthetics for Odo get better and better. But it is like entirely we we have like both the Watsonian and Doyleist explanations for this because like Doyleist obviously like they got a better budget and got better at making the prosthetics, et cetera, et cetera. But Watsonian, we have the Odo just learns to face better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing that I thought was such a dick move is Morris shows up and like the first thing he does is like stare at Odo's face and go like, yeah, the ears are still difficult, aren't they? Yeah. This is exactly like when uh, the this was, I don't know, like a decade, two decades ago, uh, one of the t- last times I saw my dad, uh, the first thing he did was poke me in the stomach and go, yeah, gain a little weight, haven't you, bud? Like, thanks, Dad. Appreciate you. Uh, Same energy. Yeah, exact same energy. Well, except that my dad was doing it out of mean-spirited and Mora is doing it out of uh, a complete lack of understanding that this may, that he, that Odo does not find this as scientifically interesting as Mora does. Mm -hmm. Uh, But same, same kind of energy of just an obliviousness as to the uh, insensitivity. All right. Um, I think I'm done with this. How about y'all? Any last thoughts? Yeah. Uh, no, great couple of episodes and I'm looking forward to more of them. And Jude, Jude, do you think we're going to see, uh, Dr. Mora again? I don't think you waste a character like that. So next time we are going to be beginning a wonderful journey. We are covering, we, this is going to be the inaugural, the first of many O'Brien must suffer episodes. Yes. Oh we have not one, but two. O'Brien has a really, really, really terrible day. <laughs> um, yes. We have episodes 13 and 14, Armageddon Game, and Whispers. Until next time, just, just keep circling. Keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Yeah. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.